Hey folks, Scott Weingart here, and this is the MCrit Podcast. I am super excited today because I get to talk to my partner in crime on MCrit, Josh Farkas. Josh is a pulmonary and critical care doctor in Vermont. He is the editor-in-chief of the Pulmcrit blog. He is the creator of the Internet Book of Critical Care, and I think he is one of the best minds in critical care. And I wanted to talk to him about a topic that might not seem on its face to be tantalizing, which is how to do the critical care med rec, the medicine, medication reconciliation. Oh, God, you know, this is not crashing pulmonary embolism, but it is critical. And no one teaches you this. I went through two critical care fellowships. No one sat me down and taught me this. You just kind of pick it up on your own. You never know if you're really doing it right or not. And so uh, I wanted to talk to Josh about this. He has an upcoming chapter in the Internet Book of Critical Care on this topic, and we figured it would be great to just put this out there. Now, um, Josh's chapter is still in the state of peer review, and that's another reason we wanted to do this episode, is um, the text of Josh's chapter is going to be on the show notes for this episode. And if you go there, what I would love, because I know we have a ton of pharmacists, pharmacologists, toxicologists, critical care docs, uh, all of those people, look at it, and if there's anything you disagree with, put it in the comments, because it will be a uh, pre-publication peer review for the official uh, go live of that chapter. So, uh, you know, rip out your knives from their sheaths and start cutting this thing to shreds if you disagree, if you think there's anything missing, if there's anything you want to add. Um, before we dive in, very quick, um, tickets are still on sale for Reanimate, our resuscitative ECMO conference in San Diego in November of 2024. You can find more information at that at reanimateconference.com. That's reanimate conference.com and you should go soon if you want to go because we always sell out. we always sell out well before the conference date so if you're interested in that you better go because uh tickets go fast and then i'll just go uh, i'll give a quick plug for the resuscitation leadership academy that is our virtual resuscitation fellowship for people in emergency medicine we've taken hospitalists as well who want to up their game in resuscitation but cannot leave their family their job to do a one to two year fellowship well we give you the fellowship in the safety and comfort of your own home we will teach you with some of the best instructors out there the skills of resuscitative and acute critical care medicine and you'll have monthly meetups you'll have one-on-one -on -one meetups it's fantastic if you're interested in that resus leadershipacademy.com, resusleadershipacademy.com. Uh, now let's get into the show with my buddy and partner on MCRIT, Josh Farkas. I don't think anyone sits down to actually say, here's how you should do medical reconciliation for patients who are critically ill, and here's what to continue, here's what to hold. So I'm super happy to be talking about it with you today. And I'm going to give you the lens by which we're going to focus, because this podcast is going to be for people on the emergency medicine side of things who may either be holding patients down in their department for 24 or 36 hours just because they can't get the bed upstairs, or they're deliberately keeping patients in an EDICU type setting for some period of time. We probably will not go to the depth we would if you were giving the same lecture to a critical care fellow because we need to know, I think, on the emergency medicine side of things, are the things that absolutely should not be continued, the things that definitely must be continued, and then the things that are in the gray zone, we could, you know, kick that can down the road and say, 
It's not critical. It gets started right now. Let's let the smarter people figure out whether or not to start this medication. So that's really what, and I think that hones our ability to speak about this, right? Because now it's the things that, you know, right away, you know, in the first 12 hours, you want, don't want the patient missing their doses of this and the things that you just clearly should stop. And then the rest of it, we could just let settle and figure it out later. Anything you want to say initially as an introductory statement? No, I think this is a super important topic. And honestly, I think it, a lot of this depends on context. So in a perfect world, there'd potentially be like a pharmacy service or some formalized approach to medication reconciliation. And our hospitals would be networked together and we'd have a medication list for all of our patients. But in reality, I think this is often done in a kind of piecemeal fashion and does not get the respect that it deserves. And oftentimes I'll finish staffing a patient and we'll talk about their active problems and what we're going to do for all those problems. And then we almost forget to do this. And then we take a second. Oh, no, like we should look at the 30 medications that they're on. For sure. Uh, which brings us, I think, to the, the first step in this, which is actually figuring out what the patient's taking. And sometimes this could be a real crapshoot. Sometimes the only information you have is the paramedics report of what they heard by hearsay of the family member that never shows up at the hospital. And you don't have doses. You just have general classes of medication or maybe the specific ones if you're lucky. So do you have any tips on this? I think don't believe what you read, I think would be the primary tip. The classic story, and I've seen this, and I think we've all probably seen this, is some patient who's not here with their antihypertensives. Every time they go to the doc, they give them another antihypertensive drug. So they have like 17 different antihypertensives. And they show up to the hospital, they're confused, and someone starts all the antihypertensives, and they go into cardiogenic shock. Whenever possible, try to figure out what drugs the patient is truly getting in their body and however you can do that best. Absolutely. All right. And then finding some form of collaboration with family to confirm, oh, yeah, no, they were prescribed that, but they've never actually taken that could be absolutely critical. All right. And then the, the second step, uh, and this is all coming, this roadmap from a upcoming chapter in the IBCC. So people could look forward to that. So I have sneak peek access to this. It's, so it'll really be a nice little textual companion to what we're speaking about. Step two is to figure out why the patients are on the various medications. And this is key. And this often gets ignored, I find, with my emergency medicine brethren is, yeah, they've done a very nice job at reconciling the list, but they don't know the reasons why. And that makes all the difference as to whether you need to continue them or not. So tell me a little bit about this, Josh. Yeah. So in, a, in my perfect world, every time you ordered a medication, you need to specify what you're in giving that medication for. And that'd be beautiful. And ideally, possibly even specify also a duration of how long that medication should be given for. And then someone could, could look at the medication list and beautifully read through it and see what's the indication for every drug, how long should that drug be on. But of course, I don't live in that perfect world. So patients come in and they have this huge medication list. And there are some drugs that may be given for half a dozen different indications. And it's super important to understand why is the patient being given this medication? For, I think aspirin would be the classic example. So patients on aspirin, did they have a stent placed a week ago? Or is it just like primary prevention? Like someone 30 years ago said, hey, man, you should take an aspirin every day. Exactly. Absolutely. And by likewise, things like uh, warfarin, where it's a huge difference in my world if it's for a mechanical heart valve or if it's for a very vague history of atrial fibrillation. So yes, definitely. And then number three on your list, and this one's key, is if you are going to continue medications to consider the role of what may be new organ failure like renal and hepatic failure. Yeah. And we'll talk about this more with some of the specific drugs. One thing to recognize is that oftentimes we'll encounter patients who have developed renal failure most often, and they keep on taking their medication. So they may show up with accumulation of several of these drugs. So even though you haven't given them like a drop of Pixaban, for example, they may be toxic and, and likewise with various other medications. 
especially we see this quite often in emergency critical care with beta blocker or calcium channel blocker toxicity, where they've been taking their normal dose, but their kidneys are shot. And now all of a sudden there's been a, an accumulation. So the next item on your general principles is avoid nephrotoxic and delirogenic medications. Yeah. In critical care, usually the kidneys are the first organs to suffer. So I think whenever possible, I would avoid nephrotoxic medications. And I think this runs counterintuitive to some principles of like folks are coming into the hospital, they're in pain, they get tortol, they get various NSAIDs, and we're moving away from opioids for lots of groups of patients. But I think for your critically ill patients, you really just want to keep this in mind. Absolutely right. And the delirogenic ones as well. So PRN benzodiazepines in an 88-year-old probably doesn't seem like a very clever move. Yeah. All right. Now, this one I think is going to be key to giving some reassurance that this is not as hard as you think, at least in the emergency and critical care resuscitation lens, which is when in doubt, err on the side of holding medication. In most cases, aside from some key provisos that we'll discuss soon, if you just held most of the patient's home medications, you'll usually look pretty smart. Is that a fair paradigm? I think that's completely correct. I think, you know, 99% of the time, if you just burn the patient's home medication list, and just especially for the short period of time, 24, 36, 48 hours, you'd be doing fine there. And I just posted a blog on this, just trying to point out that like patients are on so many different medications currently. And if you have a patient who's on 20 medications and you continue them on those, and then you add on additional medications, then the medalist becomes this like completely way too complex thing with all these drug interactions. And it's just chaos. Yeah. And one of the biggest services sometimes we wind up doing for a patient during a hospitalization is starting fresh and giving them a reset because a lot of the medications they're on are side effect treatments for the medications they were initially prescribed. And you wind up in a situation where you, you just have to declare medication bankruptcy and start fresh. All right. And then this one's there. I don't know if it'll be happening every time, but it's just a good little tip, which is we should run the final med list that we're proposing through an interaction checker program. How often do you actually do this, Josh? I'm going to say almost never since we're being honest here, but I think in a perfect world we would. And I'm super frustrated by this. I don't know what your computer system is. We have like virtual reality. We have all this amazing technical innovation in 2024, but still my computer system, like the drug interactions are really not incredibly yeah. sophisticated. Or even actively harmful to good clinical care because you get alert fatigue. If every time you get a pop-up and you're like, no, this is garbage, then the ones that actually matter, you almost want a sensitivity and specificity dial that you could turn and just find the right balance. If I see one of these pop-ups, I want it to be something serious, not something ridiculous. All right. Are we ready to go into some individual drug classes? Let's go for it. All right. So we're going to talk cardiology first and beta blockers. This is one that uh, leads to people to have uh, a lot of fretting, and I don't know if they need to or not. But uh, in most cases, uh, patients in a shock state are hemodynamically unstable. We're like, just let's discontinue all their antihypertensives, or beta blockers might be for different indications, but just take them off the list. Is there any risk of a withdrawal syndrome with beta blockers if we just stop them. So there is this like theoretical beta blocker withdrawal thing. And honestly, I'm not a thousand percent sure if it's real, especially like if someone's having a myocardial infarction or they're having heart failure. I think the cardiologist would say, try to avoid continuation of beta blockers. In reality, um, especially in critically ill patients, I think holding the beta blockers is going to be totally fine. And similar to your deltaizem, if you hold it, and the patient develops like AFib with a rapid ventricular rate or hypertension, those are easily treatable things that we're going to identify rapidly and take action on. All right. So we could probably say the same thing about medications like diltiazem. You could hold them pretty safely. And if you need to add them back later on, you can, right? Yeah. All right. Is there any reason to continue ACE inhibitors or ARBs? I think for a patient who's aneuric, then yeah, 
you could consider doing that. And I think obviously we're couching this discussion in terms of generalizations and, and certainly you need to think about the individual patient. I think 99% of the time you're going to want to stop the ACE inhibitors um, because they're never toxic. But every once in a while you'll encounter some patient with terrible hypertension and heart failure who's anuric or um, something like that. So you might want to continue in that case. Right. And we could probably make a broad-based generalization on most of the antihypertensive agents. You could pretty much safely stop them and see and then control blood pressure by other means, except for one maybe, which you have on your list as clonidine being a potentially problematic stop. So what's your take on that? Yeah. So you can get a clonidine withdrawal syndrome. So if you do encounter a patient who's on chronic clonidine therapy, you want to keep that going. And honestly, that's a relatively rare thing, but when you see it, you want to keep it going. All right. Dig, just stop, figure out where they're at. So many medical interactions. I don't know how much it brings to the table in acute critical care. So I think for ED critical care, people just stop it and let the uh, people later on figure it out. Now, statins, if there's any indication for a synergistic response that's going to cause myopathy, it makes sense to stop them. I want a justification to start them right away because for me, it's just easier to say, okay, I'm going to stop it and then let the smart people as the patient settles out, figure it out. Is there anything wrong with that opinion? I think that's fine. I think for a patient who's having like acute myocardial infarction or acute stroke, there's some evidence for initiation of statins, but that evidence is not incredibly robust. So I don't think you're going to be, I think when in doubt, you could just hold off on them. All right. And then diuretics, I put in the same kind of category. There might be definitely within those first 24 hours, a patient, I'm like, oh, let's start their chronic diuretic dose. But at hour one of their critical care time, I don't find too much problem with just treating that on an as-needed basis with my own diuretic regimen if I felt the patient was volume overload, rather than continuing their chronic medication. Is that correct? Yeah, 100%. I think this is something more where like hospital day two or three, once they've improved, and then you're like, oh, like their urine output is low. It's they're chronically on furosemide and you can put them back on. But initially, you can just hold it. All right. So POEM, right now, the main thing you have here is chronic management of COPD and asthma. And a lot of these patients are too sick to take their home MDIs or dry powder inhalers. And in general, we can treat that with our own standard IC regimens for this, PRN or scheduled albuterol and ipotropium, and we could just do that as needed or as a regular basis. So we don't really have to concern ourselves with these long-term therapies. I from, and I guess you're going to mention this later on, but we might as well just talk about it now. If the patient's on chronic steroids, then that might be a different story, right? Let's talk a little bit about that. Yeah, like chronic systemic steroids? Yeah. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. So if someone's on chronic steroids, typically you would want to continue that and depending on the dose and depending on how sick the patient was, you might even consider escalation to a stress dose of steroid. Yeah. And for me, because again, I'm not as smart as you guys later on, I'm like, if they're sick, they're just getting the stress dose of steroids because I never look, I'm looking for times where I could just eliminate the amount of decisions I have to make. And no one has ever in my 20 years doing this said to me, oh, how dare you start stress dose steroids on this patient? But yet the opposite will burn you. So for me, if they're super sick, they just get stress dose, and then the final dose of steroiding can be done uh, later on in ICU. That does bring up an interesting question that's a little tangential, but let's say they're on inhaled steroids, but super sick. Do you cover your patients for possible adrenal suppression? There is some data out there that for patients um, with inhaled fluticasone and some of the inhaled steroids, it may cause actually some adrenal um, insufficiency. So I think it was fluticasone that caused the most of this, but if someone was on relatively high dose inhaled corticosteroid chronically and they were suffering and there was some concern about adrenal insufficiency, it might be reasonable to give them some stress dose steroid. Yeah, absolutely. When I had the critical care endocrinologist, there might only be like one or two of those in the world on, that was one of her key points is inhaled steroids, you got to cover them because um, she's had too many cases of patients uh, that got missed. So that's fantastic. All right. GI, 
So patients on uh, proton pump inhibitors at, at home, are you continuing it? Are you switching them over to your own regimen instead of whatever they're on? What's, what's your stance on this? Yeah, we'll generally just continue those medications. And the hospital typically will have one formulary of proton pump inhibitor. So we'll change to whatever our du jour brand of hosp- proton pump inhibitors. I think they're all the same. Hematologic agents. This is, I think, where we get to the big stuff that you have to really make some considerations on. Let's start off with the antiplatelet agents, aspirin, clopidogrel. When do you continue these and when do you say, okay, maybe it's actually not worth the bleeding risk, I'm going to stop them? Yeah, so I think here you need to start out by trying to figure out why is the patient on these medications. So if there's a strong indication like stents or um, something like that, then certainly you would want to keep it going. There's a lot of patients who are on 81 milligrams of aspirin for no reason at all. And in those folks, you may want to to get rid of the aspirin if there's any concern about stress gastritis or um, GI prophylaxis. Um, And then this bleeds into a larger topic of just like considering the net state of anticoagulation for the patients. I think you want to think globally about the patient. What's their platelet count? Are they uremic? Are the platelets functioning well? Are they on other anticoagulating medications? If you're overall concerned about their coagulation status and whether they may get um, deep vein thrombosis. One interesting thing I think that's emerged recently over the past couple of years is there is some evidence that aspirin, I'm sorry, aspirin can have some efficacy for DVT prophylaxis. And so for a patient where you're like super worried about DVT prophylaxis, it might be reasonable to add that on. Let's acid test this a little bit. So you have a patient come in, they have a stent, a coronary stent, and they have a GI bleed. Now, obviously we're going to reverse their anticoagulation. Are you continuing aspirin in this patient? Yes, this is funny. Aspirin takes a week to wear off. And so typically what we'll do is we'll hold it for a day, which is purely, it's like this symbolic effort where (laughs) we just like, it shows that we're paying attention and we'll kind of have this like 30 minute discussion on rounds. What should we do with the aspirin? And then usually we'll hold it and restart it. But in, in reality, that patient has basically been on continuous therapy throughout their ICU stay. And if they have a stent, that's just what's going to happen. And I, I think this leads to the answer uh, I'm expecting here, but we'll just make sure. And you are not reversing aspirin on a GI bleed. Correct. Not for a GI bleed. Yeah. All right. It, for an intracranial hemorrhage, that's a whole nother topic. And I think there could be some benefit for DDABP. I think that's like a kind of bleeding edge slash controversial topic, but yep. definitely not for a GI bleed. Do things change on clopridogrel for you? I think it's a similar situation. It's not going to like, wear off within a day. Most patients who are on clopridogrel are on it for a reason. So the folks on who are on aspirin monotherapy, I'd say 30% of them are on it for no reason at all. And you can just get rid of it and forget about it. Whereas the folks on clopridogrel, someone's thought about it and prescribed it. So they, they usually have a more robust indication. So I think it's a similar situation where we might like symbolically hold it for a day and then we're just going to restart it. But in reality, we're just keeping it going. Patients on warfarin, this one brings up a lot of questions. Continue or not, do you convert them over to something a little bit more controllable or do you just keep them on their home dose? And let's start first with patients not actively bleeding right now. If they're not bleeding, certainly we're going to start by checking an INR level. And then the question is, are we planning to do some sort of procedure on them? And also how strong is the indication for warfarin? So if we need to do procedures and if there's some sort of like a weak indication like atrial fibrillation, then we might choose to give them some vitamin K. Obviously, it's if it's an emergent procedure, we might give them some PCC. If there's no plan for procedures and the patient's kind of stable and doing okay, then we might just continue the warfarin in dose based on INR. One nice thing about warfarin is that now that we have PCC, you can continue it. And if some catastrophe occurs and the patient needs a huge procedure, they have a huge bleed, you can give them PCC and reverse it. So it's not like this thing that you need to be terrified about. 
And would you be adjusting the doses if you are starting them on a medication that has interactions with warfarin, or would you still just be trending the INR? I'm basically always just going to be checking the INR daily. I feel like everyone in the ICU is going to be on some medication or antibiotic that's going to screw up the dose. Very good. Is anything different about NOAX for you? We don't have yes. an easy reversal agent here. NOAX are my nemesis. And I think this is a super important thing to just be aware of in general. So we're obviously seeing more and more patients on NOAX and they seem to be great medications for outpatients and lower bleed rates and stuff like that. But I think for the ICU, this is like a nightmare situation for us. A couple things to start out with. First of all, I'm seeing a Pixaban most often, but I think most of the other ones are relatively similar. They're renally cleared mm-hmm. and very often, and they're also hit like dual metabolism, some involvement to the liver, um, especially if you're looking at an older patient who doesn't have great renal function, they can accumulate just like ginormous amounts of a Pixaban um, and it can stay in their body for days. So you can like admit a patient, you can stop their Pixaban two or three days later, if you're going to do lumbar puncture or some sort of procedure, um, they may still have a ton of a Pixaban on board. So this is something to be aware of. So I think anytime we're admitting one of these patients, um, I'm going to think, what is the indication for the Pixaban? Um, and ideally get a 10A level to see, are they taking the medication? Is the level super therapeutic? And go from there. Absolutely. Let me give you a real tough situation just to get your opinion on it. We will have patients on either warfarin or NOAX for something like a mechanical heart valve. And I think most of them are going to be in warfarin in that case. I don't know where the data stands on mechanical heart valves and NOAX. But let's say they are anticoagulative for a mechanical heart valve, but they have a brain bleed. My take, my reading of the literature is the risk-benefit clearly goes with reversing that. And even the clotting risk of a mechanical heart valve, the one everyone gets scared of, is so infinitesimally low in that acute phase that's the better way to go. What is your stance on that? Yeah, I agree with you. I think the immediate life threat is the brain bleed. So my approach to that patient would be I would completely and fully reverse the warfarin. So I would give them 10 milligrams of IV vitamin K. I would give them PCC and completely reverse the warfarin. Patients with mechanical heart valves can tolerate a lack of anticoagulation for a day or two. So I think the move there is to just completely reverse the anticoagulation. Hopefully the bleed will stabilize. And then you're going to need to have this really complex and painful discussion with neurology, neurosurgery, cardiology. And at some point, you're going to reintroduce anticoagulation. Now, when you reintroduce anticoagulation, typically that's going to be a heparin infusion, not warfarin. So if the bleed expands or gets worse, you can stop the heparin. You can give them protamine. All right. Last one on your list for hematologic stuff is erythropoietin. I would never continue this because it's just a pain in the butt for me. So I think uh, you're on the same page, right? Yeah, it can cause DVTs. It's just not really nice, you think. Now we get to endocrine, and this is maybe, we've already talked about one incredibly important thing to continue, and maybe even augment, which is steroids, but then we get to the diabetic medication. This is like, this is a a real pulpit issue for me. It drives me up a wall when my residents tell me, oh, he's critically ill, so I held the long-acting insulin, and I'm like, no, you you just missed the boat on this one, and like, we've had M&Ms, and it's been horrible. So what is your stance on the continuation of diabetic medications. Let's start with the insulin first, and then we'll go to other things like the oral agents. Long-acting insulin. So the first issue is, does the patient have type 1 diabetes or type 2 diabetes? Those are like completely different situations. Let's start with the type 1 diabetes, which I think is more important. So they need 100% to be continued on their basal full dose of Gargene, or if they have an insulin pump, then you may need to convert them to Gargene. So the first thing to recognize is that patient needs their complete basal insulin continued. 
Um, and if they're going to be NPO for a long period of time, then you may want to consider um, some form of carbohydrate and possibly some additional insulin because some patients, in order to really, if, especially if they're under physiologic stress, in order to keep them out of diabetic ketoacidosis, they might need a little bit more insulin than their basal. So if you just give them their basal and they're not taking any carbohydrate, they could still potentially slip into diabetic ketoacidosis. But I, so I think at the absolute minimum, you need to give them their full basal dose. And then I think you need to strongly consider whether to get them some sort of enteral nutrition or possibly IV carbohydrate. Yeah, absolutely. And there is a window by which they're not going to get optimal glucose control, but still will stay out of DKA. And I think as long as you exceed that, and it's really just a bare minimum, you'll be okay. But as you say, as long as you put them on regular finger sticks, there's no real harm in putting them on their at-home long-acting and just getting rid of the more ad hoc doses and then putting them on a tight glucose control regimen through augmentation. So yeah, that's the type 1 diabetics. What about a type 2 di diabetic on long-acting insulin? Yeah. So I think this is less mission critical, exactly what you want to do here. And I think it may involve a little bit more nuance. So you want to think, look at the patient, see how much insulin they're on, confirm that they're taking it. I must admit, sometimes we see patients and they're just on these incredibly weird regimens and it makes me a little nervous to continue like a million units of insulin. But as a general rule, you can absolutely and you generally should continue their basal insulin either at full strength or if you're really worried that they're going to get hypoglycemic, sometimes you may want to consider reducing it. But then on the flip side, I think an important consideration is when patients are ill and sick and they're on steroids, they're usually more insulin resistant. So most of our patients probably continuing like a home dose basal is a reasonable place to go. If you have a critically ill patient that deserves an insulin drip with type 1 diabetes, would you hold their long-acting insulin knowing that as long as they're on the drip, they're probably going to be fine from the perspective of avoiding DKA? Or are you still giving them their long-acting insulin? I would continue giving them their full long-acting insulin because there is like an elf in the ICU that will appear at three in the morning. And what will happen is like their glucose will go down and no one will be paying attention and someone's going to shut off the insulin drip and they're going to go into DKA. So my preference is usually just to continue their basal. So when that happens, because it, it just inevitably happens, they will not spiral, suddenly spiral into diabetic QS doses. That's a fantastic point. All right. Oral medications for diabetes. Are we continuing any of these? I'm currently not. Yeah. Th there's some interesting debate. I need to learn more about the SGLT2 inhibitors, but currently that's where we're at. All right. I think that makes things very easy for us. All right. Thyroid replacement. Yeah. Folks need their thyroid replacement. The good thing about thyroid replacement is it has a half-life of a week. If the patient's NPO and they can't get one or two doses, they're going to be totally fine. Eventually, if they continue to be NPO for multiple days, then you could consider an IV thyroid replacement. So I think the key thing here is just to keep it on the progress note and keep in mind that you need to give that patient thyroid medication within the next couple of days. But if you can't get it within one or two days, that's totally fine. Love it. All right, let's move on to neurologic. So anti-seizure medication. Yeah. These, as a general rule, need to be continued. Every once in a while, patients may be on these as like a mood stabilizer, but even in that situation, I'd probably just keep it going. Yeah, because when we get to the other mood stabilizers like antidepressants, these are also ones you advocate continuing, correct? Yeah, you can get discontinuation syndromes, and these are generally pretty benign medications. You do need to have some cognizance of the number of serotonergic medications that patients are on. One potential problem in the ICU is like you admit someone, they're on like two different serotonergic medications, and then they have some pain. They get some, and they have some nausea. And before you know it, they're on like four or five different medications. So just be aware of that. But I think it's probably better to continue these. 
Now we get to the whole morass of chronic opioid treatment and treatment for opioid use disorder. So what's your stance on these, Josh? Yeah, there are many patients in the world who are on chronic opioids for typically pain, and you cannot stop them cold turkey because that will cause opioid withdrawal. But you need to be a little cautious, especially for folks who have like COPD or hypercapnia. So you might want to pair them back a little bit, but continue them in some form. So another group of patients to be aware of are folks who are on chronic buprenorphine for opioid use disorder. And these are a challenging situation to manage. So in general, you want to continue the buprenorphine because obviously patients can withdraw from it and it's treating their opioid use disorder. Come hell or high water, my general philosophy is to continue the buprenorphine. Now, the problem is patients who are critically ill often have some sources of pain. And the buprenorphine is a partial agonist. So it's going to potentially make your full agonist opioids less effective. Um, my preference here is to continue the buprenorphine. You can actually divide it. So if you divide it like Q8 or Q12, then it can have more efficacy as an analgesic. And, uh, and then to add on adjuncts like Tylenol and ketamine infusion or any sort of non-opioid analgesic if possible. And you can add like a full opioid agonist if you absolutely have to. So that's my general approach. Once again, there's a whole section on this in the IBCC. But I think that the super important point is don't stop the buprenorphine. Sometimes I might even increase it a little bit for additional analgesia. Now, I should add a caveat here that I'm dealing with medically ICU patients. So they don't have like massive sources of pain. So these aren't like surgical patients. I don't know. Is there a different approach to this in the SICU or? I don't think so. I think we'd be probably on the same page of using non-opioid agents in addition to maintaining their chronic therapy. So that's always been my stance. Antipsychotics? Antipsychotics generally need to be continued, especially clozapine, by the way. It's a strange drug where if you stop it and it needs to get restarted, then it needs to be like gradually up titrated. Is it a general philosophy? There's usually a reason for those medications and you generally just want to keep them going. It makes everyone's life easier too to have those medications on board. All right. Parkinson's, I think if we just had a vacant general rule here, it's they need to be continued. Is that correct? Yeah. And this is a really big deal. And I think this is worth emphasizing a little bit. Obviously, there's a spectrum of severity of Parkinson's disease. There's lots of folks with mild Parkinson's disease. And if they miss their medications, nothing big happens. But there are patients out there with severe Parkinson's who, if they miss their medications, they essentially experience this withdrawal um, syndrome that is essentially neuroleptic malignant syndrome. And they may lock up they can develop respiratory failure. They can require intubation. So this can be um, incredibly catastrophic for them. This is a big deal. When you see patients coming in on Parkinson's medications, especially if they're high doses, multiple drugs, um, you really want to continue those in some form. Now, for patients who are unable to take oral medications, there are various forms of, I think some can be given sub-Q or topically. There's a whole section about this in the IBCC. And I think this is a good place to work with your pharmacists and neurology colleagues. But this is a group of medications where you can get in a lot of trouble. All right. And that similar vein is baclofen and gabapentin, both agents not great to suddenly go cold turkey on. Yeah, these are tough. Very often our patients will be somnolent or develop some sort of delirium and they can accumulate these medications. It's not uncommon for us to hold them initially or dose reduce them. But yeah, you can't stop them completely for a long period of time or the patient will withdraw. And then the delirogenic medications uh, that are on their list, if there's not a reason to continue them, then generally stopping them is the way to go, at least in the acute phase. Um, is there any further nuance we need on that? So this is challenging. So there's a lot of patients who are on like PRN benzodiazepines or antihistamines or muscle relaxants. And I think 
We want to see if the patient is taking them. If the patient has been taking benzodiazepines in a scheduled fashion forever, then I will typically continue them as much as I dislike benzodiazepines because you can withdraw from benzodiazepines and it's similar to alcohol withdrawal. But in general, I think these are medication group that I don't particularly like. and I'm going to be pairing them back if possible. All right. The last major category is transplantation meds. Now we've been taught you can't discontinue them. We got a, an organ reliant on them. In the really acute phase, later on, there has to be very complex conversations about the patient's current regimen and where they're going and what their situation is and adjustments. Could you just stick with the patient's baseline dosing for the first 12 to 24 hours? So I think this has to do a lot with um, the patient's organ function and how sick they are and how the drugs are cleared. For example, if a patient comes into the hospital and they're creatinine stable and they've been on a certain tacrolimus dose forever and they're doing fine and they have some sort of acute problem, but their kidneys are working fine, yeah, you could totally just continue their, their medication regimen. I think you do need to be a little careful if patients are starting to develop renal failure. They may potentially accumulate some medications. I think a, a really important take-home point here is that almost all patients will be attached or associated with some sort of transplant center. Like a, a good transplant center is going to want to keep really close tabs on its patients. The patient will generally know the contact number for their coordinator. And if there's questions about these medications, it's really important to straighten this out. Talk to the transplant coordinator. Occasionally, you could also consult transplant docs in your hospital as well. Absolutely. No, I think that's the way to play it is different heads to the table to make a consolidated decision. All right. Is there anything we missed or anything further you want to say, Josh? I think, honestly, the more I go in critical care, I feel like it's almost just like a specialty of applied pharmacy. Mm. So when I was initially a, a fellow, I used to like write these amazing notes and they were super long and erudite and no one would read them. And there were times when I would write this huge note and I'd come up with the, this incredible plan and then I'd come back the next day and realize that people hadn't implemented the plan. And I think as time has gone on, I spend more and more time just looking at the medication list and just completely ignoring the notes. And I think the medication list is like so important. It's, it's the reality of what's actually happening to the patient. And I don't think it's possible to pay too much attention to the medication list. So I think we should always be looking at the medication list. We should understand it. Like in a, an ideal world, it should be relatively short. So you can actually look at it and be like, okay, these are like 10 medications the patient's getting. You can understand all the different medications, what they're doing, have some familiarity with them. I think that's a good situation. I hate it when patients are on like 40 different drugs and it's just like really confusing and I don't know what each drug is doing. And it makes complete sense. I love that. That's like a very zentensivist move. All right. Perfect, man. Love it. All right. I can't thank you enough. It's always a pleasure to have my partner in crime on the show and keep doing the amazing work you're doing, Josh. Thank you. So there you go. And again, the text of Josh's chapter will temporarily, maybe for a week, be up on the show notes for this episode. So check it out. If you have any peer review, please put it in the comments, and then I'm sure Josh will take your commentary and integrate it into the chapter. Uh, this has been Scott Weingart. Oh, before I go, let's quickly mention Medicine Coaching. That is my physician coaching service, executive coaching and performance coaching. Uh, we take people who are already amazing. We make them even better, more productive, more free time. Uh, we take people who are flagging, who are in the state of burnout, who are not happy with their career, and we hopefully bring them to a path of flourishing. Uh, if you're a problem child, if you're someone who's causing trouble, if you're someone who they're like, one more of these and you're going to be fired. Well, then come to us immediately because we could help you uh, avoid that. 
If you're interested in that coaching, just come to mcrit.org slash coach. That's mcrit.org slash coach. All right, enough of that. Scott Weingart, MCRIT Podcast saying bye-bye.